Hello, and welcome to The Scott Mize Show, a podcast focused on health, diet, bodybuilding, and philosophy. I interview experts, doctors, coaches, and N equals one case studies to answer your questions about improving health, achieving your best physique, and making sustainable progress. We'll cover topics from carnivore and ketogenic diets, to bodybuilding, to life philosophy, and everything in between. Enjoy the show. This episode is brought to you by Optimal Carnivore. A lot of people ask me about organ meats. Do you need to eat organ meat? How, how do I eat organ meat? And Optimal Carnivore was created by carnivores for carnivores. They created a unique organ complex from grass-fed animals in New Zealand. It includes nine different organs, liver, brain, heart, thymus, kidney, spleen, pancreas, and taking just six capsules is the same as eating an ounce of raw organ meat from the butcher. I've been personally using Optimal Carnivore for years. My wife and I, I use it almost every single day. It's great when I don't have fresh organs available, don't feel like eating them, don't feel like cooking them, or if I'm traveling, I know I can get a variety of super high quality organs daily. Um, and they have lots of different products from their beef liver product to their organ complex to their brain product and their, their bone and marrow product. They have excellent products filled with highest quality ingredients and you can get 10% off your order and support the show by going to the link in the description of this episode and using the code carnivore10 at checkout. That's carnivore10 to save and support the show. Thank you. Dr. Dave McConey is the host of the Brains and Gains podcast and YouTube channel. Dave's interviewed dozens of industry experts and puts out informative videos on training, nutrition, health, and other interesting topics. He also makes a donation to a charity of the guests choosing with each episode, which is pretty cool. Dave holds a BS in exercise science, has been training for decades, and has a wealth of knowledge on many topics. He's also a very successful and experienced dentist with a thriving practice. I've consulted with Dave on several topics, and I watch every episode he puts out. Welcome to the show, Dave. Thanks a lot, man. Wow, that was a great intro. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's all true. Uh, well deserved. Um, so yeah, thanks Thanks for taking the time. Um, I'd love to just start with kind of like your, your history and how you got into training, how long you've been training, um, and where you got started with that. Sure. Uh, yeah, so I started, I mean, you know, sports from when I was a little kid. Probably the first time I did any sort of actual lifting of weights, I was between 12 and 13. Uh, I remember distinctly, like my dad setting me up with just kind of like a generic routine. And I, you know, I didn't know, of course, what I was doing, just kind of going through the motions. And then when I was 14, he gave me Body for Life by Bill Phillips. And that, I mean, I was just immediately hooked. I remember sitting in my bed and just going through the whole book in a day or two. Uh, and that's, you know, I, I think a little bit unusual in that a lot of people started lifting in high school, but this was like very regimented. Like I understood the cardio aspects, the nutrition. I was extremely dialed in with the nutrition, at least, you know, for what we had back at that time. Um, and I was training to failure. And, and so I was like very into it from the time I was 14. So basically 18 years now. Uh, so that that's basically how I got started. And then since then, I feel like I've tried almost everything out there you know there's obviously super high volumes low volumes uh super high intensity different techniques and everything um and you know it's been a learning process throughout and then obviously the podcast you know we started in 2018 and wow. really at that point yeah i know it's, it's crazy i think it's been five years now and 
at that point, it was mostly, you know, I was finishing up my residency. And so it was like, well, I have a little bit more time. And, you know, maybe I'm not going to make the same progress as the early years. But how can I kind of stay involved with the fitness industry? Because I knew some of the guys, I mean, like just little comments here and there, nothing crazy. Um, yeah. But it was enough to kind of get started. And then one connection led to the next. And then here we are. Yeah, that's awesome. I actually also started my podcast five years ago. It was oh, August 2018. So okay. that's fun. I didn't know we started around the same time. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you said you've tried everything. Um, and w- one thing I find really interesting on your channel is you focus a lot around, you're not like a power lifter, but you focus a lot around like strength standards, like getting your uh, chin up, rep max up, getting your bench, your overhead press. Can you talk about like how you kind of landed on that philosophy and that focus um, through all the training you've tried? Yeah, sure. And, and I would say less strength standards in terms of sometimes you'll see these different formulas online of like, well, if you're this weight, you've been training for this long, this is what yeah. you should be lifting. And less so that, just more on progressive overload. And, and I'm kind of glad to see even the industry has kind of come back to more just looking at difficult sets. You know, they used to talk about like volume load and not that that's not relevant, but I, I think for the most part, very few people are doing these like crazy high volumes long term or crazy high volume loads long term. I, I think for the most part, we're looking at moderate amounts of volume with moderate rep ranges and progressing in those over time with effective exercises. Like that to me is, I mean, obviously there's a million ways you can do that, but that to me is the basis of, you know, good training long term. It's like, okay, fine, maybe like say three to five exercises per muscle group that you really feel work for you. And over time, you should be getting a lot stronger, right? Like if you're doing 135 for bench for 10 reps now, and you're doing that three years from now, very unlikely that the muscles involved there are going to be bigger, right? I mean, almost exceptionally unlikely, unless maybe anabolics are now involved and whatnot. Um, And you could just be like, it it can sound so simple, like you say, oh, well, like, just get stronger. Obviously, it's not just that simple, because there's many ways you have to learn how to do that. But if we're just looking at outcomes, almost across the board, you're going to need to get stronger in those rep ranges over time for growth. Yeah, absolutely. And um, especially like, as you become an advanced lifter, um, you know, it's it's really hard to measure muscle gain, obviously. Um, so it's, it's nice to have something like objective that you can tie yourself to. Um, can you talk about like your motivation and your goals with training and how they've evolved over time because you've doing you've been doing this for a very long time yeah, uh, sure. and you talk about kind of like reaching at least close to your genetic potential and how gains diminish over time can you talk about your philosophy around that yeah so let me back up a little bit just because you mentioned the advanced training aspect and so something i, I always thought was kind of funny kind of silly is you hear some of these higher volume advocates they'd say well you can't add weight forever so you know this is another way to progress mm. to which i would think yeah you can't add sets for either you know, i mean forever either you know it just doesn't make sense like if let's say you start at eight and then eventually you get up to 20 and you do that maybe like like an rp kind of periodization and not that they you know i don't want to like make blanket statements for them but if they yeah. start at let's say eight sets at the beginning of a mesocycle and then they go up to 20 it's like okay that's that is progression, but if you just keep doing this cycle, like something else has to be happening within it, which again goes back to getting stronger. And and all those guys would of course agree that you do need to be getting stronger over time. But I just thought it was always kind of a silly argument of you can't add weight forever. I mean, honestly, I think you can add weight for a much longer period of time than you can just add sets. You know, adding sets right. really only goes so far. Um, as, as far as my philosophy and like more like with my own training, 
I understand that there are people who say, you know, there's no natty limit, there's no natural limit, you know, it, we're all basically saying the same thing, right? I think anybody who is at all sensible would agree that you're not going to be 300 pounds shredded as a natural, right? So that is beyond the limit. So by saying that that is beyond what is possible, you would acknowledge that there is some limit. Now, if you want to define that, you can't say, sure, like this is a specific limit, more like you don't know what that would be for you. And maybe you had this incremental progress. But at the end of the day, we're all basically saying that when you start lifting, you're going to have much better results, assuming you're doing things properly, right? Like if we just imagine everybody's doing things correctly, it's going to be, you know, you're going to get great results and then it's going to level level off. And sometimes, you know, it could have a low period. And then all of a sudden you have maybe like a spike up. Maybe you had more recovery. Maybe one thing or another was different. Maybe you were just going through puberty. But at the end of the day, things are going to slow down dramatically. And at that point, hopefully over so many years, you've garnered enough interest in this that you're not just doing it for the results because you'll get very demotivated if you do. You know, I I mean, there's no natural that I know who's 15 plus years into it, whose motivation is, man, like I just look so much better than I did like a year ago. (laughs) Maybe it's incremental and maybe you can kind of make yourself believe things are still changing. But um, I think you have to develop an appreciation of love for it. And then, you know, obviously we're all getting older. And so at some point it's about, you know, longevity and, you know, being active and maintaining. I mean, one of the things I said is body, like especially natural bodybuilding is really one of the best physical endeavors you can do because the injury rate is exceptionally low. There are so many health benefits physically, cognitively, just psychologically. Um, Pretty much everybody should be doing it, you know, bone mineral density, all that stuff. Uh, but there's almost no downside. And so when you look at how well you can maintain this, you can maintain a really near peak physique until your 40s and, and even 50s. And that's very unusual for most physical activities. So uh, it really has to become a lifelong journey. Yeah. And uh, one thing I appreciate so much you talk about on your channel is like a lot of studies where they're comparing, you know, a low volume to a high volume group or one protocol to another it's in beginners and it's also a very short term, Mm -hmm. right? And so like, how do you think about rates of progress over a much longer term? Do you think kind of like all roads lead to Rome to a certain extent? And and what has your experience been like with that? I do think that at the extremes, obviously, if you just have a terrible routine, that could limit you from ever getting to your, you know, your peak. And, And if you have an amazing routine, I think that will get there faster. But I think a lot of people... Of course, the actual specifics of the routine are important, but they often ignore the stimulus of calories and a surplus. And I do think that, I mean, when you just look at how many people get to amazing physiques with dramatically different routines, it's really hard to make an argument that one is clearly so much better, right? Again, maybe you get there a little bit faster, uh, but, you know, I, I think if you had whatever, like three triplets, or let's just say like 10 identical people, right? And they all over the next 10 years, bulked up, and then, you know, eventually, after a few years, cut down and bulked up and cut down, they kind of went through that process while lifting hard, and keeping things sensible. I don't think the difference between, you know, exercise order here or a split difference there is going to be resulting in much difference at all, really. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And one thing that um, you've brought to the forefront a lot, and I think it's talked about a little bit more than it was in the past, I'd be curious to hear your opinion, um, is genetics. Why, why do you focus so much on genetics? And like, what do you think people should know about 
uh, genetics and, and their role in, in all of this. Yeah, I, I, that is obviously something I, I've talked about a lot. And I think it's natural that people kind of shy away from the topic or they get upset by the topic because there's nothing as of now that you can do about it, right? And nobody wants to think that they are limited by their genetics. And so, um, and, it, and it's funny because it's I, I really see people get pretty emotional about it. Like this is just an excuse and everything. But like, obviously, you know, the, the cliche examples p- people bring up, right? Obviously, genetics are going to limit you in basketball. You're not going to be an NBA player. You know, that people bring up like a single example of a short NBA player and be like, well, this guy didn't let him stop it. And it's just like, yeah. well, okay. But <laughs> the vast majority of people are, are, you know, going to be much taller in that example. Uh, and I, I think even knowledgeably, like Mike Israel and other people would like, even like Greg said, as much as he has, a, you know, maybe not great reputation, all of these people acknowledge genetics are a huge factor. Um, and then some people say, well, you can't just have great genetics and just sit on your butt. It's like, well, of course, you know, it's, it's necessary, but not sufficient to get to elite levels. Right. Um, and if you just look at a bell curve distribution, it makes sense that a lot of people are going to say, well, it doesn't make that much of a difference because most people are going to be within, you know, a single standard deviation of the norm. But for every Doug Miller or Lane Norton, if you believe they're natural, for every one of them, there's somebody on the opposite side of that bell curve that is just not going to pursue the endeavor much because they're not very good at it, right? I mean, so uh, people gravitate towards what they're good at and what they have positive feedback, right? You get those dopamine hits, this is successful. You just keep going with it, right? So um, it's something that, frankly, it to me is so obvious that that pattern is going to emerge that it's almost hard <laughs> to imagine how people really debate it, that somebody yeah. can argue that there's some people will argue there's no genetic relevance which is shocking you know i mean i you know one example i don't mind calling out is somebody like ben pakalski where the guy was like a top six mr olympia he was squatting 700 pounds within i think a year or two of training and something you know ridiculous but claims that he had horrible genetics right i mean he, yeah. he just put out some calf and quad program and it's just like you know he's probably the last person who you should be taking that advice from just because you know he's so gifted so um, I don't think it should be used as an excuse. And that that is one of the difficulties with it. And that is why I do understand people have some pushback because it's extremely easy to use it as an excuse, right? Well, I'm never going to... Like, I, I say these things because they're not talked about as much. But I equally think that a ton of people... You, and this isn't just for lifting. This is just for life. People will use their baseline level, whether it's like where they were born or whatever their situation was in life, bad genetics, to completely limit themselves. And, you know, I mean, I don't think I have a stellar physique, but I certainly have an above average physique. And and I started extremely skinny, right? I grew up as a fat kid, got almost anorexically skinny. Um, I certainly don't have like great genetics, but I've I've made the best of it that I can. Uh, So I I do, I just want to say, like, I do understand the people who fight against that, because it can be very limiting to a lot of people if they just think, well, I can't do anything about it. Yeah, it's it's so pervasive. Um, even in like the business world, you see a, it's somewhat similar, but you see people like being like, oh, what is Steve Jobs morning routine or like Alex Hormozzi or something? Mm-hmm. And we're just so drawn to anecdote. It, it's like in our DNA, it's, it's something that we um, like just are so drawn to. And, you know, replicating what they do is no measure of, of what, outcome will happen for you if you do what they do. You know, they're they're probably successful in spite of what they're doing or it's just random. It doesn't really matter what they do. They would be successful. Yeah. Um and you see it in in 
the fitness industry all the time, like people look at coaches and they'll look at their top athletes or, you know, people want to know what like C-Bum's training routine is. Yeah, and yeah. It's like, you should really be looking at people who started out looking pretty terrible and got like good results, not amazing results. And like a lot of those people and then see what worked for them. Like that's a more accurate way to think about it, I think. Yeah. And it, and it is tough. And there's so many confounders. Actually, I, I want to make a video. I don't know if I have time, but um, on Jeff Nippard had made a, I think it was a post or something about how uh, genetics are just as big of a factor as steroids. And so like Natty or not, that's what it was. He said, Natty or not videos are dumb because something along the lines of, you know, they're so influenced by genetics just as much as steroids. Yeah, and whatnot. And, you know, I, there's a lot that, that could be said on that. Um, what I will say is at least genetics are constant, whereas um, steroids are not. And so, yeah. you know, I, something I've seen people talk about is like, oh, like this doesn't matter because that person has stellar genetics. It's like, well, but they've always and will always have stellar genetics. It doesn't allow them to progress forever. There's more just yeah. a more obvious response to things, but it doesn't yeah. mean that things that would never work are going to work on them necessarily. Yep. Whereas with yep. steroids, somebody could actually start doing something so much worse than what they used to be doing, but they could double the dosage and see better results. So I, I think gear is a much bigger confounder in terms of determining results. Yeah. Um, but but anyway, yes, like in, in terms of looking at people's successes, I understand it because I mean, the reality is even with what I know about you know human psychology and whatnot, I would not go to a financial advisor who was not making much money and didn't have anything to show for it, like with their net worth. Like I just, I just probably wouldn't, you know, I, yeah. even if somebody was like understood everything about lifting, but they were, let's say two years into it and they had just gone through like a program. And so they, they understood the knowledge base, but they had not a lot of experience. I just, there has to be some sort of like proof. And that is very difficult because, um, you know, when you actually look at people's results, it is so determined by genetics and, and other factors. And the same thing could be said, even for finances, you know, I mean, uh, certainly there are people who just have advantages or connections that help them out. So it, it I don't I don't think there's a blanket like this is what you have to look at. I, I think it just takes time and effort to parse out what's legitimate. Yeah, yeah. There's not like data you can analyze on like how many people got successful with certain programs or anything like that and like what was the genetic factor at play yeah <laughs> uh, that would be really cool but uh, unfortunately yeah it's amazing to me how many top bodybuilders like you bring up ben bikulski a lot but it's not just him like i hear it all the time on like fuad abiyad's podcast or um people have like instagram q a's and someone will inevitably ask how would you rate your genetics and they'll say like average or like yeah. pretty good and it's like, if you are in, if you've ever been to the Olympia or if you're like a pro bodybuilder, you're probably in the top 1% of genetics yeah. or like close to it. You know, um, it's just, I, I think people don't understand like how far the distribution goes. Yeah. If I had, like, I, sometimes I wish like if somebody, you could just have like a simulation where it's like, a, you know, again, we'll use like Ben Mikulski example. It's like just putting somebody like putting him in the body of somebody else for like five years, right? They're like 20 years old, just somebody with like, you know, bottom of the barrel genetics and just just like to change their perception of what is possible. Because you, again, you get this in other areas of life too. You know, you you visit another area of, of you know, the world or something. You're just like, oh, wow. Like your perception completely changes of like yeah. how good or bad you have it, right? 
Um, and I just think it's almost impossible for people to not count their own personal experience as number one, right? As evidence. It's just, it takes so much to be able to step back and, and not consider that. And I, I see that in life all the time, even like with, like you mentioned, like my, my practice, right? Like my dental practice and everything. It's like, yeah, like I, I think, oh, I've got this, I've got this, and this is going well. But sometimes I think, well, I could have just been in like a, maybe like a much more competitive location, or I could not have the hand skills that I have or something. And it could just not go well, practices closed down, like thing. And so um, it, it's very hard to not just look at your end of one. Yeah. And um, like you mentioned people uh, like enhanced bodybuilders and, and people using steroids. And one thing you brought up on your channel, which I think is a really good point is like it, it's not that you should completely ignore that side, but you should always take those people's success and their methods with a grain of salt, because you can't necessarily determine um, like if it would work for you and if what they did was a result of superior training, superior nutrition, or just drugs. Yeah. 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 It, it's, and again, going, I, I, maybe I will make a video elaborating on this, but I, I always find it interesting when somebody says, well, because they have good genetics, they just respond to everything. Now, to some degree, I, I can understand that. But again, I would see good genetics as an amplifier, right? So if you have bad genetics, maybe you gain, you know, half a pound from this routine or one pound from this routine, you know, assuming that everything else is equal. Uh, maybe with genetics, it could be on the extreme end, five pounds and 10 pounds, you know, right? Um, you know, looking at those two different routines there. But with steroids, again, that can change so dramatically. And I've just seen so many people who use gear, don't know what they're doing, just do absolute nonsense, and they have insane results, right? And again, that also comes back to genetics, right? How they respond to gear is going to be genetic. But um, it, it's such a huge confounder. It, it really has to take, I would say, more than a grain of salt. I mean, I, I would say it, sometimes it's almost irrelevant what they say at times. I mean, and the example I've given... I don't want to call out this person, but I've seen somebody say, well, I'm on a lower dose than I was before, and now I'm bigger. So my training yep. is better. So which yep. I would say, okay, so imagine if somebody is 200 pounds, and they're eating 5,000 calories a day, and they're gaining weight like crazy. And then they go to 4,000 calories a day, and it's still a surplus. So it's still a stimulus to gain weight. So they get another five to 10 pounds. And they say, oh, well, I'm actually eating less than I was. So like, you know, my training is better. It's like, well, you still had, a, let's say, call it a super physiologic amount of calories, right? More than you needed. So there's still that stimulus. If you started blasting crazy amounts of gear, and then you go on lower, but still high amounts of gear, of course, you can still keep growing unless you had already gotten to the max genetic amount for the first amount of gear. You know what I mean? So I, I just think... And then you talk about like, you could have different compounds and you could have like, there's just so many factors that go into that world. That's why they, they call it chemical warfare at that point, because it's just such a huge, huge influence. Yeah. And um, even like the before and after concept and like causation is such, is so skewed in our psychology. Um, like people will say like, I tried this training and I started responding so much better. Um you're not really like measuring your rate of progress. Mm -hmm. So it could very much be that like either it was a delayed effect or your body was just like you said, like training results aren't linear. Sometimes you'll go through like a growth spurt and that may not be because you changed the training stimulus or you 
changed what drugs you're taking or he changed your diet. It may just be like your body was like ready for that next spurt. And it happened to happen when you changed programs, or maybe you're just more enthusiastic and more motivated to train and more consistent. And so there are all these factors where uh, people will automatically attribute causation to a change they made, uh, but it's not ever necessarily that. Yeah. And that's, that's even assuming that those changes that they're perceiving are even actually happening. And by that, I mean, yeah, yeah, like, let's say they gained five pounds. You're right. It could just be, they were just happy to go through like a spurt, or maybe there was less stress in their life or whatever else. But there's many people who they convince themselves they're making progress and they're not, you know, I brought up my friend from college a couple of times. And every time I saw the guy, it was like, oh, I'm, you know, this routine's amazing. I'm doing this. And it's like, hey, I, I appreciate the optimistic mentality, but I've been friends with you this whole time. And you look exactly the same. So, you know, this person could be that guy on a forum or Instagram talking about this amazing routine. I mean, how many influencers do we know who do look exactly the same? And they're talking about, if you want huge arms, try this. I've been doing this and it's been blasting my arms. It's like, dude, like you have amazing arms, but you had equally amazing arms two years ago. Yeah. So oftentimes I think people should, you know, be a little wary when they see influencers talking about like this or that has worked so well for them. You know, I mean, I mentioned, um, I'm blanking on the guy's name now, the uh, like biomechanics guy who passed away. Doug, was it Doug? Um, oh, yeah. Brig- Doug. Oh, Brignoli. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and super enthusiastic guy. I think he was, you know, had, had good intentions and everything. But I mean, he was talking to Mike Israel about he's growing like a weed at 60 years old. And I'm like, man, no, like, you're, not. <laughs> you're just not. You're just not growing like a weed at 60 years old after an entire lifetime of lifting and probably some performance enhancement in there too. It's just not happening. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, can you talk uh, like about your nutrition history as well? Um, I think uh, that'd be really interesting for folks because, like you said, you've you've tried almost everything. So I'm curious to hear like some of the things you've tried and why you tried them and, and what happened for you. Yeah, I, I think the only thing I've not tried is a vegan diet. I don't really have much of an interest in it, but uh, <laughs> but yeah, like when I so when I started, it was very so body for life, and this is I think one of the problems with that was they would talk about these free days, right? So this was the first time that like an exposure to to cheat days became a thing. And unfortunately, I had a pretty obsessive mindset with it. So I would like crash diet throughout the week, and then have this 10,000 calorie cheat day, essentially. And that's when I was like, really young, which was like, not not a good, you know, mindset at the time. Throughout high school, I was extremely, extremely strict with my diet. And to the point that it was, again, an actual net negative for me, because I didn't really know that you could get similar results by having, you know, more leniency. And so I missed out on social opportunities. And it's actually something I do try to tell younger audience members is if you're in high school or college, or I mean, you're just in general, like you should be enjoying life. Like, I, like unless you're in a contest prep, you know, I don't want to hear that you, you know, didn't go out to be social with friends because there was going to be a piece of there or something. I think too, that's just a very net negative for your life. Um, but I've done carnivore diet just as an experiment just to see i know obviously you have a ton of history you know with that um i've done keto diet several times including keto bulks which suck (laughs) i've done uh you know much higher carbs i've done like probably every different refeed strategy out there um so i've done a lot i've done some intermittent fast mostly intermittent fasting i would say since 2011 Uh, i was like very nervous to try it at the time because at that point i was still doing six or seven meals a day and I just thought that, you know, every two to three hours you need protein. And I had no worse results. Actually, my sophomore year of 
college, people probably heard me talk about this. I gained more muscle than my freshman year. And that was going from six or seven meals a day down to three, eating in an eight hour window and cutting my protein from which like at the time was almost two times body weight. It was like 300 grams of protein down to like 180 grams of protein. And my freshman year of college, I netted about seven pounds of lean body mass. And by that, I mean, like I bulked up, you know, 20 some pounds, cut down and got to the same leanness, seven pounds heavier. And my sophomore year. So at that point, now I'm closer to whatever my genetic limit is, but I still was actually able to gain eight pounds my sophomore year. So that was like a very good productive time period, those first two years of college. Um, But again, that was, I mean, I think I put a hundred pounds on my deadlift that year and that was cutting out, uh, I mean, cutting out like the extreme frequency of meals and then cutting protein almost to half. So uh, that is something I've stuck with is, is, you know, more moderate protein, which at this point, I think almost everybody agrees with, right? Right. One gram per pound is, is totally sufficient. Um, and then the intermittent fasting, you know, I'm not a big fan of like huge fasts or anything like that, but I, I think three meals a day over a eight to 10 hour window is probably fine for most people. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I'd love to hear more about, uh, your experience with the carnivore diet and I can, I can give you mine too, just as point of perspective and kind of how I think about it now. So I did the carnivore diet from late 2016 to 2019. Um, oh. I was extremely strict. Like I didn't eat cheese. I ate hundred percent animal foods for that full three years. Um, and I started it because, you know, at the time I was eating pretty much a keto diet or like a primal type diet. Like basically I wasn't like counting my macros. So I wasn't trying to hit a certain fat or protein ratio, but I was basically eating meat, avocados, nuts, and like a little bit of spinach and, and plants. Okay. And at the time, and, and I was eating a lot of cheese at the time I heard a podcast, um, with this person, Amber O'Hearn, um, who's considered like kind of an expert, um, uh, citizen scientist in the carnivore and keto space. And she made some really interesting arguments about like plant toxins and oxalates, as well as a lot of the epidemiological research, which previously vilified like saturated fat and eggs mm-hmm. um, was the same science that promoted um, vegetables. And so I was like, that's really interesting. Um, let me try this. I was basically looking for like a quick fix, a way to eat as much as I wanted and not get fat and feel better. Um, and I, I bought into a lot of the hype around it. Um, yeah, sure. And I did a pretty poor version of it to start. Uh, mm-hmm. Like I was, I was cooking a lot of ground beef and I was like eating all the liquid fat with it, which is not good for your digestion at all. Uh, but despite that, I still got pretty good results, yeah. um, probably because I was eating a lot more protein. Um, and, uh, I was also resistance training at the time. Um, and around the same time I started testosterone replacement therapy, which is huge confounder. Um, but, uh, after three years, what I found is basically I couldn't sustain my weight on a carnivore diet, I got to the point where I needed like three and a half to 4,000 calories a day just to maintain my body size. And I couldn't consistently tolerate more than like 150 grams of fat a day. Mm -hmm. Um, What would happen is like very far away from my meals late at night, I would get like extreme belching and burping. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think I couldn't produce sufficient bile um, to digest that much fat. 
And so that meant basically, if you do the math, I was having to eat like massive amounts of protein to fill my macros. And yeah, that, wow. that comes with a lot of issues, you know, having to pee all the time, sweating, uh, it like protein just isn't a great energy source. <laughs> um, and so I, I slowly started reintroducing carbs, um, at the end of 2019, I did basically like a whole 30 reintroduction method where whole 30 is like this elimination diet people do for 30 days. And then the way they recommend reintroducing foods is you try one food at a time, um, like a banana, not a food group, but a banana, you'll try it for three days. You'll have like one serving a day, and then you'll write down how satisfied you were, how it affected your digestion, how it affected your energy. And then you'll go back to your baseline diet and then you'll try another food. It's a very slow process, but it actually helped me a lot because I learned um, like a lot of foods I could tolerate super well, um, Mm -hmm. like white rice and yogurt and a lot of fruits. And then there were certain vegetables like broccoli or other cruciferous vegetables, which I didn't tolerate very well at all. Um, And now I eat a very wide variety of foods (laughs) um, and I, I feel great. I can digest them super well. Um, so now I, I, I really see carnivore as like an elimination diet, um, Mm -hmm. and a good way to like, most people can tolerate meat just fine. And if you're having digestive issues, IBS, Crohn's, other, other issues, which may be tied to diet, if you do it for a couple weeks, 30 days, and then you slowly reintroduce foods, it's a great way to learn like what foods you can and can't tolerate, um, and then there are some people which seem to, there isn't science on this, but there are some people like Michaela Peterson and such, who it seems to help a lot with certain autoimmune conditions. Right. Uh, we don't know a lot about that yet, but for those people, if they feel great, it seems to help them, then I don't have a problem with that. Um, but yeah, I'm curious to hear like, what was your experience? Were there problems you were trying to resolve by trying it? And um, what is kind of your, your opinion on it now? Yeah, just real quick, I'm curious. Did you do? I mean, I, I feel like you probably did. Did you do much blood work on carnivore? Yeah. So interestingly, I'm like I have always had really low, not even just normal, but low LDL um, cholesterol, and so my cholesterol never got to be high on mm. it. Um, wow. And my HDL actually went up a lot. Um, yeah. Got into like the seventies. Okay. Uh, do you know so, what your LDL was? Um, I know my total cholesterol was normal. Um, okay. so it couldn't have been that high. The triglycerides were like in the thirties on it. Wow. Um, so yeah, I know a lot of people, their, their cholesterol will go crazy on yeah. it. Like mine actually was, was like very good. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a very insulin sensitive person, especially when I was on the carnivore diet, I was like 160 pounds, had a tiny waist. So triglycerides were always very good. And then for some reason, my LDL has just never been even close to a problem. Wow, that's great. So yeah, so I did it, let's see, the summer of 2020, actually. And I think we had, you know, we just started going back to work after COVID. And I basically just kind of wanted to see how I felt. So I only did it for four weeks. And the first week, lost a lot of weight. I remember what, what was actually really shocking was the, actually, it might've even been the, I think I had done a week, stopped for like a second, did it again. 
And when I ate ad lib, now this was after dieting. So like okay. I was dieting hard. Yeah. And then I did a week ad lib and I gained actually like five pounds the first week. Oh, wow. And, <laughs> and then I started to lose more weight. And I remember thinking like, okay, like I'm losing weight. This is good. And then what happened was I remember, of course, upon reintroduction of normal foods, I had all that extra fiber and everything. And I realized, oh, I hadn't actually lost weight at all. Like I was just losing that food bulk, right? So um, in terms of weight loss and weight gain, I think, you know, obviously thermodynamics are still going to apply. It does seem like in your example and on other people's examples, they can eat more. And that's yeah. probably just because of the extremely high protein intake, right? And, and you know, maybe some carb sensitivity and whatnot. I think but, people are also very often miscounting, overestimating how many calories they eat on a carnivore diet. Mm, um, they feel they, so full. They cook out a lot of the fat too. Yeah. And they're, yeah. they think they're eating all that fat. But yeah, True. sorry. No, no, that's all. That's all great points. Right. So um, that is something you see like on keto and other diets too. People say, oh, I can eat whatever I want, quote unquote. It's like, well, yes, you can eat whatever you want within the confines of this restrictive diet. Right. So yeah. like when I was bulking up on keto in high school, 3,500 calories was disgusting to me. I was drinking <laughs> olive oil and eating peanut butter, which I love peanut butter. And it was just gross at some point, right? Where yeah. 3,500 calories normally is just not that hard. So yeah. um, as far as how I felt, I felt great on it. And I, the problem is I just, I would never do it long-term one, because it is just so restrictive. Um, I yeah. love food. I love trying foods and like going out and everything. And at some point, I mean, of course, so like, if you're, if you are like Michaela Peterson, where you're just in constant pain and, you know, like you have like this arthritis issue, I can totally understand it because it's just, you're just weighing the pros and cons, right? So you feel yeah. so much better, but it is restrictive. But yeah. if you're like the average person who's like, Hey, I just want to lose some weight or something. It's like, man, the net negative of only eating meat, like it's not like keto, like a keto diet, especially these days, there's a lot you can do with a ketogenic oh, yeah. diet. Still restrictive, but there's a lot you can do. Yeah. But a carnivore diet is so unbelievably restrictive that yeah. I mean, you've, you've basically lost a huge part of social life. You've lost a huge part of, you know, just the enjoyment of food and everything. So I, for that reason, I wouldn't recommend it to almost anybody. And then secondly, I do think there is sufficient evidence that links LDL to atherosclerosis. And I, I do think that there are going to be problems for a lot of people. Now, I know that's highly debated in the carnivore world, right? Sure. <laughs> so I do think that, you know, there is probably a difference between somebody who has very high LDL along with metabolic disease, right? Low HDL and high triglycerides and they're obese. And that is, that is probably very different than somebody yeah. who has high LDL with very low triglycerides, who has a low body fat, who is active with a high HDL. Those are probably, you know, different cohorts, but I still personally would not be comfortable going decades of my life with a super elevated LDL, which my LDL was in the 300s on carnivore. Wow. My total was in the 400s, which is yeah. shocking, right? I mean, that is extremely yeah. high. And even if I felt amazing, and again, I felt, I did feel good on it. I just, I would not be comfortable with that because of the unknown, right? If, yeah. if enough studies come out to show, hey, you know, people like, you know, we get Sean Baker's blood work and like, like you know, a hundred other people's blood work who have been doing carnivore for 10 years and there's just no deleterious effects. Yeah. And, you know, calcium scores are still zero and all these things. Okay, like maybe that's some more evidence for it. I don't think we're ever going to have a randomized controlled trial of a decade of carnivore diet. But if we yeah. can get more and more evidence, you know, I'd be more open to it. Um, I do find it extremely interesting that there are these subsets of people, like you mentioned, like Michaela and Jordan Peterson and, and others who 
I, I do like anecdote is still evidence. You know, it is low quality evidence, but it is evidence. Yeah. And when you have hundreds of people saying that they had a dramatic improvement in their autoimmune disease, even at similar body weights. Yeah. It's like, that's another factor, right? You get some people going on a diet. Oh, I feel so much better. It's like, yeah, you lost 50 yeah. pounds, right? <laughs> but you have a lot of these people who are actually already thin people, or at least not fat, who feel dramatically better. And like you said, some people would argue, well, it's just an elimination diet and that's fine. But for those people, it's a big deal, right? And again, I, I think uh, somebody like Jordan Peterson is can be a little overdramatic at times, you know, sure. like, you know, definitely. <laughs> that's his thing. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. You know, like he was on Joe Rogan saying he didn't sleep for 30 days, which, you know, highly unlikely, but, um, yeah, you know. Yeah, so th- so there are examples of that, but still, he he feels that he can basically eat meat and salt and water, and then that's it. And it's like, hey, man, like if you feel so much better, and and um, he actually, I don't know if you saw his interview with Peter Atia for Peter's um, outlet. Oh, I did. So cool. Peter or Jordan did ask him because I've wanted to ask him Peter specifically about like what do you think about this pretty large group of people who feel <clears throat> dramatically better, and, and is there something going on there? Um, and I don't know. I mean, it, it does seem like for many people, there is something. So I, I wouldn't discount that. I think something's going on there. Is it just that something else they were eating, you know, in the standard American diet was causing problems? I don't know, but I wouldn't just totally discount it. Yeah. 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 I think that's a really um, balanced and uh, informed perspective. Uh, and I agree with everything you said. Um, one thing that uh, I found really cool about your channel is like, you haven't just been about fitness or nutrition. You weaved in a lot of, um, perspective and it's clear you're very passionate about like health, um, topics in bodybuilding and fitness. Um, can you talk about like why you, why you've decided to explore that more and make content about it? Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's always tough when you have a podcast or a YouTube channel to veer off from your general topics because you have an audience that follows you for those reasons. Right. So like, you know, I I put a video out on like how to grow your arms and that's always going to get a lot more views than like how to, you know, do this for the long run. Right. Or just how to be healthy. Uh, And again, I'm I'm sure it would be the opposite for maybe Rhonda Patrick. Right. Because her channel is much more focused on health. So if she put on like a a muscle growth video, it's probably not going to get nearly as many views. But um, I do find pretty much everybody should find health interesting, right? But I think also just from my life experiences um, with you know people close to me that I've seen have a lot of health issues. Um, also, just patients of mine. You know, I, I treat people from two years old to a hundred years old, and I've had like I've had. I remember having some people who were maybe in their twenties saying like, "Oh, like you know, you're very worried about certain things," and I, I try to not let health concerns, let's say, consume my life. But when you see people who are towards that tail end of their life, it it has an impact on you. You know, I mean, the average person, what much older people do you see? Pretty much just your grandparents, right? Like that's most people's interactions with people who are 80 plus is their grandparents, right? The average person doesn't see a lot. Whereas I see people in their 60s, 70s, 80s every single day. And I can tell you that the decline is pretty dramatic. Right. I mean, at 60, like you're still doing stuff, but a lot, a lot, a lot of people go into retirement and they think, oh, I'm going to be doing all these things. And then they have maybe a couple of years and it's like, you know, I can't really travel or do what I wanted to do. Um, you know, just sudden 
crises that, that come up for people. And then 70s, you're lucky if you're still really active. And then 80s, I mean, om- almost nothing at that point. People who are like, well, I can't even like, you know, go visit places. And, and there are these exceptions, but those exceptions are kind of what is motivating to, to make sure that you're in this for the long run. And even just from an injury standpoint, you know, I mean, um, I guess this will be a, a funny time to talk about it. But, you know, a couple of years ago, I feel like jujitsu got huge, right? Like everybody was talking about presenting jujitsu yeah. <laughs> and it was just like blowing up. And it was always kind of funny to me because there were all these white belts and blue belts. So for people who don't know, right? It's like white belt, blue belt, purple belt, brown belt, black belt. And all these white and blue belts were like, dude, you got to get into it. Like you're athletic. You'd be so good and with the long limbs and all this stuff. And I'd be like, yeah, I don't know, man. Like I, I'm pretty sure like you're going to get injured. Like, no, no, you're not going to get injured. It's just about this. And it, it's, it almost reminded me of when you get these people who are one to two years of into lifting and they say, oh, well, I'm going to, Michael Hearn's natural. I could be like that in 20 years. And it's like, it's consistently the people who are just starting with lifting who are oftentimes a little delusional about what's possible. And, you know, it's very rare that you get somebody who's 10 years in who, you know, doesn't understand some of the limits there. And so with jujitsu, any black belt or brown belt will tell you, you will get injured. Like you're going to get injured. I remember I, I met up with Mike Israel at a jujitsu gym and he was like, no, like you, you will get hurt at some point. It's like just rampant, like people who need surgeries, like all these things. And I look at that and I'm like, okay, so if I'm trying to do this for the long run, I don't want to get into jujitsu just to like get ACL tears and like shoulder problems, all these things. Whereas going back to what I said before with bodybuilding, it's just like, you're so much less prone to injury. And so I hate to be, you know, only in my early thirties and thinking like an old man or something like I can't do this or that thing. And there's something to be said for experiences, but more and more as I get older and see older patients, I do try to make sure that anything I do is not going to interfere with my ability to do more activities when I'm older. Yeah, I think that's a great philosophy. It's funny. I've tried jujitsu twice Mm -hmm. and both times I've gotten seriously injured. (laughs) Really? Yeah. So the first time I did it, I showed up to like a lunchtime class. There were like six guys there. They were like, and I was super enthusiastic about it. And usually, at least the classes I went to, like the first half, you'll like drill some new move, um, which is like very casual and slow. And then for the last bit, they'll be like, okay, now you roll and you like rotate partners and you basically like try to take the other one down. And um, I was really bad. Um, and I was like 165, 170 pounds at the time. And there was, there were like two guys who were like 220 plus. And these guys just basically sat on me. And I remember coming out of the class and I was exhausted, covered in sweat, amped up, felt good. I went back on the subway and I was sitting down on the subway. And like, as I calmed down, I started realizing like, wow, I'm in a lot of pain. Mm. And for like, and then slowly over the next few days, my ribs started hurting so much. And it turned out I actually, one of the like really small ribs at the bottom mm-hmm. of your rib cage, I broke one of those. Oh, it was wow. extremely painful. And I like couldn't lie on that side, turned all weird colors. Um, so that was the first time I tried jujitsu. Wow. <laughs> and then the second time I, I have a really bad back from rowing. And so I had a pretty bad injury from that as well. Um, so yeah, I forgot you rode. Yeah. You, you were pretty into it, right? Yeah. I rode competitively for, um, eight, eight years. Um, so I started in eighth grade and then I was recruited to, uh, college for rowing, lightweight rowing. And I rode competitively there. 
Is that pretty common to get back injuries from rowing? Oh yeah, very common. Um, the problem is in the U.S. they stick everyone in eight-man boats, which mm-hmm. is sweep rowing, um, which means you have one oar rather than two oars. Two oars is uh, called schooling, and so it's very asymmetrical. You're you're twisting to one side. Oh um, yeah, all the load. You're on a, a moving seat, so people think like, oh, you're rowing with your back. You actually row with your legs. You push from the seat, and then the load transfers through your back to the oar. It's kind of like doing a deadlift. Um, And uh, one PT described it to me at one point as like moving pianos around corners is basically what you're doing over and over and over and over and over again in this repetitive motion. Um, Combined with lightweight rowing, you're like cutting, you're doing these extreme diets to make weight. So yeah. Is is there a much lower injury risk with the two oar rowing? Yes. Yes. A lot of fewer injuries than that. And in um, like Europe and other parts of the world, a lot of people learn to row in two oar boats and like sculling. But just because in the US, they're like, you know, trying to get as many kids out on the water as possible. And Mm -hmm. it's like easier to coach just a bunch of kids in one boat. They stick everyone in eight man boats. I feel like I would just wonder why is that even a thing? Like just without knowing anything about rowing, I'm like, why would it not always be two oars? That just seems. The eights are the most exciting. They go the fastest. Um, And so, yeah, that's like kind of always been the main event. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. yeah, So, and and I'm sure there are people who will listen or just people out there who are super jujitsu and they've never been injured and it, you know, they'll say, Oh, just yeah. roll with the right people and don't let you yeah. go to the way tap early. Like I understand, but it's kind of like, again, show me like a super successful power lifter who's 50 plus who doesn't, isn't like riddled with injuries. Like, I, <laughs> and, 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 and to be clear, powerlifting is way, way lower risk than jujitsu. Like jujitsu, you are yeah. against another human being different or tennis body running. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just, and I mean, I, I love tennis and I think, um, you have to be careful with again, like any asymmetries, right? You're always going to be hitting with one hand for the most part and whatnot. Like there's, but jujitsu probably would have, I would have to imagine outside of like boxing would have some of the highest injury rates because again, it's you, it's, it's combat with another person. Um, and, and you're just not going to convince me that like, if you just look at the anecdotal evidence, almost everybody who has been doing, I mean, I have, I had an assistant whose husband was like a high level jujitsu guy. Um, and he was riddled with injuries. I have an employee whose husband is just got his black belt. He's my age, riddled with injuries. Like it's, it, it, I love the idea of grappling. I think it's awesome, yeah. but you can't tell me that it's not high risk over a yeah. long period of time. And I'd actually so- be really curious to see the difference in injury rates between CrossFit and jujitsu. Um, cause I feel like CrossFit is a very high injury sport. <laughs> I, I think I'm sure it is. And I, I have heard that it's, it's almost hard for me to imagine anything would be as high as like any combat sport, you know I mean? Yeah. I, I mean, just yeah. blatantly sure. <laughs> attacking each other. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, again, I mean, I, I, people who have seen the channel enough know I, I love UFC. I love watching it. Um, you know, I think grappling is awesome, but for me, I'm like, oh, you know what? I'll, uh, I'll stay out of that one. I think. Yeah. What do you think are some of the most neglected or like underappreciated aspects of health in the fitness community? For naturals or enhanced? Uh, both. Just like things that aren't talked about enough that uh, um, like the fitness community should know more about. Yeah. So I, I think for enhanced lifters, 
I would say imaging is super important, right? I, I mean, you know, rewind 30 years ago and then like pretty much nobody was doing anything yeah. other than just like talking to people about, you know, maybe you see the doctor here and there. And then yeah. blood work became much more common. It's, it's honestly amazing to me now that there are so many people who still do stuff and they don't get even blood work, which is just yeah. so basic. It's generally very cheap to just ignore that. It's just crazy. Uh, however, I do think because with the popularity of blood work, what happened was people then started to become reliant on that. And they'd say, oh, yeah. well, things are my fine. My blood work's fine. I'm fine. Or my yeah, blood, blood work's, work's a little bit off. I'll be fine. Yeah, I'll be fine once I come off cycle. It's like, okay, you're not really, first of all, you're not going to pick up everything in blood work. And then yeah. secondly, you're not counting for the like the accumulation of damage over time. So I know you and I have talked about that before. I, I think like, you know, different imaging, echocardiograms, you know, different scans that people can get, I think would be very important if you're going to go down that route and monitoring it again. And now I really strongly believe almost everybody should stay natural unless you have like very highly competitive at, um, like goals, you know, at the elite level. But if you're going to go down that route, I do think there are ways to stay on top of it and be aware of these things before they get too bad. And as far as naturals, I think it can be tough because I don't know if people need to be hyper, hyper focused on it. If they're, let's say, young and healthy, like if you're like in your 20s, I don't think you need to be getting blood work as a natural like four times uh, per year. You know, I don't think you need to necessarily be getting all these scans. I think to get a baseline of things is great. You know, maybe like an annual physical with blood work and everything from that standpoint is is good. But I think it's probably just more so that you want to be aware of. So like you said, you've always had historically low cholesterol, right? So that's yeah. good to know. Uh, I know Brian Borstein also had like historically very low cholesterol. If you're somebody who maybe has like, you're like a Pete Rubish and you have elevated LP little a, like that's maybe good for you to know. Like there are things that are important, but I, I don't want people who are in their 20s to just be obsessing over these things. I think as you get older, it's more and more important to monitor. But I, again, I think going back to if we're not just talking about like, you know, internal organs, which is general health, I think people should be cognizant of how they are lifting. Because as much as I said, you know, bodybuilding is a very low injury activity. There are a lot of people who do dumb things, even in their first years of lifting. And that actually sets them back for a long time. They just, oh, I can't, every time I do this thing, I get heavier, you know, my shoulder, I just, I can't bench anymore. I can't do this. I can't deadlift. And I think, and I know from personal experience that injuries can kind of cause a loss of love for it over time, because you just, it, you keep reactivating the injury and having more problems. And so I do think focusing on doing things with proper form at any age is important because again, you just get too many people who get out of it because they can't, they can't match their old self anymore because they're so injured. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's a great point. I mean, I've I've had my share of debilitating injuries and it's it's life-changing. Like especially back injuries, you just you can't do anything and it's it's horrible. So I think that's definitely not spoken about enough. Well, yeah. thanks for coming on, Dave. Uh, this has been excellent. Really love chatting with you. Um where can people find you? I'll have links to everything in the show notes. Um but thanks again. Yeah, sure. Uh, yep. So Instagram is just Dave underscore McConey. YouTube is the Brains and Gains podcast. Um, that's that's pretty much where you could find me. Um, you know, you'll see like links to emails and stuff that people want to reach out. And uh, yeah, thanks for having me on, man. Awesome. Thank you, Dave. Thank you for listening to the show. You can find The Scott My Show on Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. Please leave a comment 
like, review, or share the podcast with your friends or followers. It helps more people find the show.